Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Nicola Handley and I'll be the guest host today. When you're told that you have lung cancer, the shock and uncertainty that you feel following a diagnosis is unimaginable. But it's something that over 100 people receive every day in the UK. With Lung Cancer Awareness Month taking place this November, we'd like to use this opportunity to talk about the coping mechanisms that can be put in place following being told that you have cancer and the positive steps that can be taken. We're kindly being supported by three special guests who can discuss the support available, remind people they're not alone and try to help people who are in similar circumstances. Firstly, I'd like to introduce Lisa Barnes, who's previously worked as a specialist palliative care nurse and an oncology nurse, amongst other roles. Lisa is currently working as a case manager, supporting people following a cancer diagnosis and other life-changing illnesses and accidents. Lisa, what support does a person need following a cancer diagnosis? Hi Nicola, thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast today. Um, When I think about the support my clients need, the first thing that springs to mind is inevitably good communication. Um, This would take many forms and is different for everybody. I think somebody like David, who's joining us today, is... um, a very strong character, very brave, very defiant person and um, would probably want to know all the facts ahead of speaking to the medical teams and and want to be completely kept in the picture. Other people um, prefer to appoint a spokesperson who speaks to the medical teams for them and, and sort of drip feed information to them. So it's about finding what's right for you. I think it's really important to ask questions and keep lists of questions. Knowledge is power after all and helps us to prepare for the future. And I think it's worth mentioning that you need to be prepared for disappointment too, because lots of my patients and clients tell me that um, people that they found to be really supportive in the past, you know, close friends and people that they've turned to, when the person has become ill, they found that these friends that were previously supportive avoid discussing illnesses and brush over what's happening. They often turn discussions around to themselves. And I think that can be really upsetting and lead to hurt and betrayal. But we all deal with things very differently. Um, Other support mechanisms are having the facts in your toolbox. So knowing about symptoms and side effects, understanding the effects of cancer and its treatment on day to day life and being prepared for side effects that you might feel like fatigue and nausea, pain, skin rashes. Um, I think all of my patients and clients would agree that cancer treatment is like a full-time job and so much of your time is taken up with appointments, reviews and scans, checkups, blood tests, phone calls, transport, and just generally waiting around at the hospitals. So knowing what's ahead of you helps you to plan and prioritise and keeping the normal stuff that you enjoyed as a as a priority for you. Keeping as healthy as possible is really important, a balanced diet, lots of exercise, taking part in activities that you've always enjoyed and just adapting so that you can still enjoy them. And also tapping into palliative rehab, which can include occupational therapists, which can help us to maintain our independence and provide aids and equipment and um, ways of coping with fatigue, coping strategies for things that crop up. Physiotherapy, 
so trying to keep as fit as possible so that um, you know we feel as good as possible and psychology for instance where we can share our feelings with somebody who is a stranger to us and is not attached to us and helps us to process and adapt to changes. I think it's really important to accept help. It's really difficult for some people who have always been doers and very independent and perhaps carers themselves previously. So it's quite hard to accept help, but it does make other people feel better if they can help. And it's really important to encourage your loved ones to accept help from friends and neighbours too. That might be, you know, just providing lifts, getting some shopping in, making a casserole um, and just keeping other people updated so that you're not having to repeat information a hundred times. So it's, it's really important to accept help, but not always easy. I think coping strategies come in many forms and one size definitely doesn't fit all. So some people really get a lot out of support groups. Other people don't. Or maybe they don't find support groups helpful at first, but they might do further down the line. Um, they might consider complementary therapies, relaxation therapies, keeping a journal and just making time to be alone or being as involved with work and leisure activities as possible. It really is different for everybody. But I think I should say here that um, having support from a case manager is also a fantastic support um, and coping strategy and can be really helpful for a number of reasons, which I think I'm going to talk about later. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. That's really vital information that people need to know and understand um, following a cancer diagnosis. And as you said, we'll talk about the crucial support that you offer and the difference that it makes shortly. Joining us today is also Linda Domble, a physiotherapist specialising in treatment for people with cancer. Lynn, could you talk about your career and how you help people following a cancer diagnosis? I can indeed. Thanks, Nicola. Thank you for the invitation to the podcast. Um, I started my career as a registered nurse um, for six years and then went on to do my physio degree. I worked in all areas of physio, but it was my role specialising in cancer rehab at Bexley Wing at St James's that um, got me particularly um, inspired in, in cancer rehab. Amazed really by what impact we could have as physiotherapists in, in the cancer patient's journey and helping their quality of life and overall outcome, which was a, a whole new experience really from my previous experience in physio. And uh, it was this passion really that led me to set up Rehab Beyond Cancer, where I provide physio to help improve the strength and function and quality of life for those affected by cancer and this is for anyone at any point during their cancer pathway. So it's the really the effects of cancer and the cancer treatment such as surgery and the chemotherapy and radiotherapy that cause a lot of the uh, problems for the individual patient and it can be any combination of these because the treatment pathway obviously is very different for different cancers and for patients individually. So some of the more common problems that I would treat from a physio perspective are fatigue, pain and helping to reduce swelling. This may be surgical swelling or maybe lymphedema. I can help with increasing the strength and balance and help with joint or muscle tightness 
and every person will obviously have very different set of problems and will prioritise them differently. Along with the physical treatment, patients will then feel more informed and able to reclaim back body confidence and control. And longer term, this can then help with them either returning to work or any sporting activities or any activities that are important for them. So along with the physical side of things, it's about people knowing really where to start or, you know, how much to do and, and just taking back that control. So just having that information and that support can help them take back that control. And so it's about working together and looking at what's really important for that person, listening to what's really important to them and helping them with those goals. Thanks, Lynn. That's really helpful. Finally, I'd like to introduce David Hall, a client of ours who's benefited from support from both Lynn and Lisa and his wife, Joy, who's also here with us today following his cancer diagnosis. Firstly, David, I'd like to thank you so much for agreeing to come on our podcast and talk about your cancer diagnosis of mesothelioma and also the support that you've had from Lisa and Lynn. Thank you, Nicola. No doubt you've got plenty of other people that you could actually speak with. So I feel quite honoured to be sharing my experiences with you. It wasn't a very good experience if I can start at the beginning. I did six months backwards and forwards to my local doctors, which was horrendous. Bit of pleurisy. Oh, no, you've got pneumonia. Oh, there's something wrong with your sixth rib. And by the time I'd had x-rays and CT scans and then CT scans with contrast, finally, I got a telephone call. Can you come in in the morning? We need to see you at Pontefract Hospital. I thought, wow, at least I've got somewhere. At least I'll know what's wrong with my sixth rib. We arrived home at five o'clock in the morning and at 2.30 in the afternoon, we had an appointment with an oncologist. He invited us into the surgery there and he said, uh, hello, David, uh, can you sit down? I said, yes, of course I can. And I introduced my wife, who was with me at the time, and I said, uh, right, what's, what's it all about? Because I don't know who you are and I've got some information that you need to know. I said, and what's that? He says, well, you've got cancer. I said, pardon? He says, you've got cancer in your pleura. I said, is that the problem in my sixth rib? He says, well, it's lying at the level of your sixth rib. You know what the problem is, David? I said, what's that? He said, the problem is, what, how old are you? I said, so what's that going to do with my problem? I've got, I'm 76 now. He said, well, if you'd have died earlier, you wouldn't have known about it. I thought, God. How do I react to that? So I just kept quiet. I thought, well, I'm not going to give you the time of day. And the oncologist nurse that was appointed to me, Carol O'Connor, said, hmm, David, would you like to come in this other room and I can help you fill out some forms and let you know what's happening? That was the first bit of help I'd had in six months that really meant something to me. 
so we filled a few forms in and she gave me a certificate of a D1500. And I thought, right, and that's spelling it out. And I got a written statement by hand. I left that hospital absolutely gutted, thinking, well, can't control this. After he told me I'd got two to six months to live, where do I start? What do I say to my children? How do we, how do we let them know? I was absolutely gutted, broken, physically and mentally. I just didn't know which way to turn. It took us six weeks to organise a meeting with our children, to be present with one of the children, the eldest one, and we did a Zoom meeting with the other two. Our middle child, Sarah, had grave suspicions that I'd got cancer anyway. So it didn't really come as a hard bullet for her to actually accept. At the meeting, she says, well, the only option you have at this moment in time is to have chemotherapy. I thought, oh, my God, that kills people, the mind, anything else. So I thought, well, is there anything else you can give me besides chemo? Well, we can only give you chemo and the national health. I says, what does that mean? She says, well, all we can do is help you that way. I says, well, isn't there anything at all I can actually do? She says, well, not from us. I left it at that. Our daughter had already been in touch with Chief person that's in Leicester. Leicester tried to get some information from him and she wanted me to go and see him irrespective of what it was I said well I can't afford to pay that private there's no way when we left it like that and I was doing a lot my daughter was doing information our sons and both daughters were looking into what treatment was available and we was in stress over I was pulling my eyebrows out pulling my hair out and I thought my goodness me what can I do here except get some eyeliner and put it on my eyes brows I thought well you know I'm a person who likes to know the facts and those facts can be acted on if you know if you know 100% information you can do 100% job of what needs to be done so I thought right to go back to what I was saying was that we did a, like two and a half, two months of investigation of what I could do. In the meantime, a solicitor who we was d- discussing a timeshare claim said that, oh, the, the solicitor that I used to work for, just tell him I've recommended him to that you go to him. So we spoke with him and he said, well, send, I'll get my secretary to send a, a, a pack of information that we need from you. I'm not joking, it was as big as an A4 diary, thick as that. It seemed absolutely horrendous. That just added to the stress I was going through in the first two months. I thought, well, this is not right. And then Carol O'Connor said, well, have you talked with a chap called Simon? And that was Simon Bolton. I said, who is Simon Bolton? She says, well, he's a person who works out of York who runs a group called Messi. So I went to the first meeting in November and told him all about what we was doing. I bumped into a chap called Bob, bright, sparkly, same sort of uh, things that I'd done. I was amazed walking into the meeting how many people have actually got mesothelioma. 
I couldn't even say that word at that time because I was so gutted. And he said, well, have you got a solicitor? I said, what do I need a solicitor for? He says, well, you can claim for industrial injuries. I says, well, I'm getting that from NHS because we had a person that helped us film forms in for that. He says, well, you need to claim. I'd recommend that you spoke with Nicola, Nicola Handley at the solicitors in Leeds. I said, you know, the solicitor I've got at the moment just will not answer the phone. He won't talk to me. He always get put through to the secretary. She can't help me. I thought, this is crazy. I'm going to have a word with Nicola. And Nicola was absolutely spot on. She arranged, she says, well, I'll have to come to see you. And as we were going into COVID, she said, well, we'll just have to set up certain things in by computer and letters and we'll discuss it with you. I says, well, I've got a problem. I'm already in conversation with a solicitor and committed to that solicitor, but I haven't filled all the forms in because I just don't understand them. It's too much of a minefield. So she said, don't worry about that. I'll deal with that. I says, what? She says, don't worry about it. I'll repeat that. I'll deal with it. Stop stressing out about it. The longer we went on, it was in sort of March time when Nicola came to see us. We mask on and everything else. I thought, well, and we sat well apart at that time and we just for this and asked for that. And I think Nicola was absolutely gobsmacked that we could put his hands on employment in details just like that from the past because I don't, I'm a bit of an order. I don't throw anything away. It was good to know that I was away from the solicitor in Northumberland Way because they hadn't helped at all. Not really. I went into hospital in December, had three and a, uh, three, about three litres of fluid taken out my chest, pleura, and I thought, right, what's the next on the agenda? She says, well, you'll have to watch and wait. So I had the chemo start in July. And I thought, oh, this is all right. I've I managed to get over that one quite well, first one. By the time the fifth one went round, I was absolutely on my shoe tops, as the saying goes. I was unfit. I was tired all the time. I slept most of the days as well as nights. I was waking up with pain. This chemo has absolutely wrecked my body. And from that point on, I went downhill. I lost weight tremendously. I thought, what's the point? What is the absolute point? But you were, you were quite lucky, David, because you did reach out to various services, didn't you, when you were in pain? You didn't really sit yeah. there and, and take it. So so one of the services that you had a lot of support from in respect to the pain was, was the local hospice, wasn't it? Yes, but I I was recommended that I should go and speak with the hospice. Well, I thought, if I go to a hospice, probably come out in a box. That's not my thoughts were at that time. I was told that it was not just for end-of-life care, and it's a case of reassessment as if I was going into a hospital. By gum, when I went, I was treated with great respect, 
and uh, Dr. Cooling came, who's a specialist in uh, anaesthetism, and he prescribed certain medication. Four days I was in there, and I came out a new person with no pain. And then, obviously, after you came out of the hospice, I think you met up with Lisa, didn't you? And Lisa then arranged some additional services. I don't know whether, Lisa, you want to talk about what you discussed with David when you first met with him? Yeah, sure. I think um, when I first spoke to David, it was because of COVID, obviously, and lockdown. It was very difficult to, to provide the support in the, in the usual way that I would. And that would be, you know, visiting him. So we spoke on the phone and this was prior to going to hospice. It was having quite a lot of side effects and issues. And I was able to sort of do a the best kind of assessment that I could over the phone of what was going on and advised him of, of what to tell the people involved. David, as he said, went off for his four days in the hospice, was very anxious about that visit and, you know, was convinced that was somewhere people just go to die. So we talked through that as well. But as he said, his um, experience of that was really positive and they got on top of those symptoms and he came out feeling fantastic. I visited some time later and we were able to go into other issues that were bothering David at the time. But to be honest, he, I always find him really well. <laughs> He's always really positive and, and really well. So there hasn't been any massive crises to sort out. We've been able to talk things through. But the main problem for David was that having been such an active man with a, you know, a very busy life, always helping other people, very involved with the church, very active, always on the go, never stopped. Um, and he was finding it very difficult to, to cope with the fact that he felt so tired, that he was lethargic. His body just would not work for him how it always had. And it was nothing to do with his age. It was all associated with the cancer, but mostly the cancer treatment. By this time, I had met Lynn and um, spoken to Lynn. And, you know, she's very individual and very specialist in her field you know, I don't know of any other actual physiotherapist working specifically with people with cancer and she'll tell you much more about that but so I made the referral for David and and that's been really successful for him. So Lynn when you first met with David what kind of thoughts did you have what plans did you put in place in order to deal with those issues of fatigue and not being able to do what he did before because of the cancer diagnosis? To begin with, um, you know, we sort of talked about what he felt his, his main problems were. And it was, as I sort of alluded to earlier, it, it's kind of that knowing where to start, really, or how much you can do and, and what's important. So I think initially it was things over the virtual consultation I could see how he was walking so things like you know struggling to do um, shopping around farm foods and having to hold on to the trolley for, for support and not feeling like um, you know he was strong for that or walking at his son's with the dog and so it was kind of just talking about you know where he was at really and you know as Lisa says you know I found David um, very positive and very motivated sometimes a little bit over over <laughs> keen with the exercises and sort of you know sometimes I had to sort of rein that in a little bit but definitely very on board so it was quite easy to get David 
sort of obviously on board with with the exercises but I, I, I think it wasn't until he was starting to do things that he could see how he was walking was changing you know and things like carrying milk from the shop up the drive to the house how that was to begin with it, you know he was really struggling with that and then he could ma- manage two liters of, of milk so it was it was great to work um with david because we always had other things to, to you know there was always new goals because you know there's no end to what David wants to do you know and and very very motivated so you know it it, it was great to, to work with him and you know Joy was always there we worked together so you know addressing you know mainly um strength but knowing how much to do so we often use things like he had his SATS monitor so we were able to see when he was doing the exercises what the recordings were and make sure that his heart rate wasn't um, too much but it was pushing him it was all all that kind of thing and using equipment around the house you know because I could see around the house Joy was the camera lady carrying the um, iPad you know and sometimes I say no I'm, I'm looking at the wall now but you know we, we, we work together as a team and you know and, and actually even though you might think that virtual consultation seems a bit like you don't build up a rapport with people you really do because you're still seeing how they are in their house and what really matters to them and and working on that yeah I think you've made a real difference Lynn I've seen firsthand David lifting his hand weights and walking around his, his garden which I know he was struggling with for some time and um, David you've also benefited from psychological support was that an important part of your treatment and support following your diagnosis of cancer that's right uh psychologically getting fitter was an absolute gem that's the only way I can put it it thought it's it proved to myself that I was not a washed up finished if you understand me drift Lisa also was absolutely brilliant with the help and the steering that she gave me and yourself the way that you guided me through paperwork was absolutely phenomenal and that's the only way awesome as kids would say today and obviously now you've moved on to what is known as second line treatment so you're having immunotherapy yes. treatment can you understand the benefits of being fit for treatment um, and how that's making a difference before my second line treatment i thought well i'm going to go through another load of chemo again but it wasn't quite this bad because i'd started my physical regime which was building me up. Uh, I had a course of steroids, which I felt like King Kong. I could move anything, which put me back in line with level one to be recommended to go forward for a second line treatment called nivolumab. I thought, brilliant. Bob had spoke about it and others at the messy meetings. I thought, fantastic. I'm getting somewhere. So that was started in March of this year. And up to now, I've had nine treatments. Being fit for treatment has made a real difference because you're now um, over two years post first symptoms of your diagnosis. And if you hadn't had the support from Lisa and Lynn and various other services, 
you yeah. wouldn't be remaining performance status one as you are and being able to have nine sessions of immunotherapy treatment, which is obviously making a difference to um, your, your quality of life and the time that you're able to spend with Joy and your family. I also think it's important to point out that there's lots of other support out there and particularly one who's sitting beside you. Joy um, is David's wife and a man carer at times. What would you say um, the difference that treatment has made to David's life and yours following his diagnosis? Well, I think that the treatment, when you we talk about treatment, at the beginning, when you hear that you've got cancer, you actually are so frightened, you don't even say it. You don't say the word because, you know, it's, it's, it's just there. It's like having an elephant in the room. And once we got on the way with treatment, we found that the people that were involved, especially at Pontefract, when we were going for chemo, they were so lovely. They were so careful, but they were understanding. And I used to take David in the car and he'd go and get his treatment and I'd go under shopping or come back home. And then he'd ring me and say, I'm ready. I'm Can you come and get me back? And I'd go fetch him back. And the chemo was a little bit hard on David. He used to have injections in his tummy after he'd had his, his infusion on the first day. They used to come in for four days after and give him these injections, but they racked his body so much. He used to cry. He used to, he used to think, I'm going to have an injection today. And he used to get so wound up. And I said to him, you know, there's a means to an end here, David. We've got to keep going down this road because if it, I know it's hurting you and I know you feel horrible about it, but let's see if we can knock it on the edge sort of thing. And after he'd had fifth one, we went to do the sixth one and we talked to the doctors and they said, we don't want to give you the next one. We think that you've had enough. This is during COVID as well. So I think they were eking it out a bit for other people as well. We've heard of other people having four and five, so it wasn't new. He managed to bounce back then after he'd stopped having his chemo and we had time where it was easier yeah, to yeah. look after you, didn't it? Mm. Then he was, as he said earlier, when we got the opportunity for the aromatherapy, the second line treatment, we found that that doesn't hurt him as much. He goes on a on a Thursday for his treatment. He's okay Friday. Saturday is usually a rough day. He can sleep all day. And then he bounces back again. But with the chemo, you had like 10 days of grief. And then you start to get better. And then it was time to go for the next one. And you didn't seem to have that space in the middle where you could recuperate a little bit. But one of the biggest things I think has helped David is we've got a new great-grandson that was born. He's, he's two weeks old on Sunday, isn't he? And we haven't seen him yet. But we've had um, he's come, this little boy's come into our lives and he's, uh, he's a hall. So David's got somebody to carry on his family name. And it, it's, it's been a, while Amy's been carrying this baby, it's been something that's kept him going. I do believe that we, we come to the conclusion, and, and you might think we're silly, but we are Christians, and we come to the conclusion that everybody's terminally ill. You just don't know when you're going. We've had a letter to say that we might go, David might go sooner. 
you've got to live each day because if you worry about it, it's not going to add to it or take anything away. That's brilliant. Thank you, Joy. Um, yep. Lynn, I just wanted you to maybe highlight that obviously David's been able to benefit from Lisa and your services by way of his civil claim, but there's people out there who've got a cancer diagnosis and need statutory support for exercise, pain relief. How would you signpost them? Who, who would you say they should be talking to? If they're still under the care of the consultants, so still receiving treatment, then they could ask their consultant if there's a physio they can see in the hospital. There's various services out there, but they do differ depending on what cancer diagnosis you have. Places to go to the VIE GP and the GP may ask you to see one of their care navigators. And, and they're the people based in surgeries now that um, recommend and can inform you what services are out there. So, that you know, there's places like Maggie's and the Robert Ogden Centre places like that where they have in the past been um, they, they have exercise classes or they have people that you know do yoga and things like that there's the Yorkshire Cancer Community which is a support group that's um, run by um, someone called Jill Long and also um, there's certain GP practices that are now covered by the Community Cancer Support Services Macmillan also runs something called Safe Fit, which is a free remote exercise service. I, I think also just to be aware that, yes, obviously, if you've got a claim and you can pay for private physio such as myself, that that's great. Not not everyone is in that that situation. And and if, if that is the case, that just don't shy away from it completely because it may be just knowing having one, uh, you know, a one-off chat where you can then be signposted to know actually what you need to do or, you know, just looking at how somebody is that it's, you know, it, it is about, you know, getting people just knowing what they need to be doing in whatever services are out there at leisure centres, you know, sort of locally anyway. That's great. Thanks, Lynn. Lisa, I just wanted to come back to you to discuss the importance of instructing a case manager, if you can, to support you when you have a legal claim to take away the burden from carers. Sure. When you have a case manager like myself, who's a healthcare professional with a, an oncology background, you have a wealth of knowledge at your fingertips, really. So um, that advice and guidance can be on tap. We have wonderful NHS and hospice teams, but we all know how understaffed and overworked they are and they can't always be available when you need them. Um, and I think sometimes people aren't sure which ones to call. So, you know, Lynn's just mentioned the array of people that can be involved at any one time. And, and it's really difficult to know who to ring, when to ring, whether it's out of hours, you know, who, who you can get in contact with. And then you're sort of at their mercy, really, because they can't just see you straight away or talk to you when you need them, whereas a case manager can. So we can speak or visit or have meetings by Zoom as required. And I think sometimes people just want to ask what they think is a daft question. Sometimes people have got a big issue that they don't know how to deal with. And uh, the, the great thing about a case manager is we have a solution for everything. And if we don't know, we know how to find out. <laughs> We can act as an advocate and we can liaise with medical teams and the multidisciplinary team. So that takes a huge amount of time and pressure away from, from the person with cancer. And we 
would do a full assessment. So we'd look at physical needs, social, emotional, financial needs. Um, we can source and appoint therapists like Lynn. We can get hold of equipment. We can resolve employment issues. We can set up care packages when required. You may need a cleaner or a gardener, all those things that are so time consuming and you just don't have time to look into because you want to be spending time with the people who are important to you doing the things you enjoy. We can do all that for you. So we can give advice about benefits, organised travel, um, come to solutions to address loneliness. We're pretty much unshockable, I would say. We've probably heard everything before and we know how to sort things out. So. I think the other thing is that we can advise about treatments such as nivolumab, the immunotherapy that David mentioned earlier, and how you may be able to access that when, when the NHS aren't able to um, provide that. So I think that the list of things in the ways that a case manager can help and support you are, it's, you know, you, you can't really state because you never really know what one person is going to need. And sometimes they don't need very much at all and then lots all at one time or there's a slow drip of support and we can tailor that to whatever you need. I hope that helps. Thanks, Lisa. That's it. Clearly, you're an invaluable resource when you're able to um, instruct yourself. Coming to the end of our podcast now, and I just wanted to ask everybody, what would be their, you know, one bit of key advice that you would want to offer somebody who has received a cancer diagnosis and if I could maybe start with David first. The advice that we've have received or we have received so far has directed in the right path. I don't know where I would be without Nicola Hanley at Erwin Mitchell's. Lisa was absolutely patient with me, for want of a better word, in explaining the physical and Lisa has directed us both in the terms of what has been implemented through her has been great. That's all I can say. Great. So clearly, David, for you, the importance of support and professional oh. advice has been key following your cancer diagnosis. What I can say is this. As, you, as a person who now have cancer and this terminal illness, you can only have it once. So therefore, as you've not travelled down that road before, you don't know what's out there and you don't know what's coming along. A hundred mile an hour and when it's going to happen. But because of our faith, we're not too concerned of that day when it does happen. Having people around us that know and how to deal with situations like Lynn has said, and Lisa have said, and yourself, Nicola, we would not be in this position now. I would have probably lived the six-month period. Also, we've had help from SERAG, which is a, uh, a group that helped me get my driving licence. <laughs> Just a simple thing like that. I applied three months before the finish date of my driving license and I wasn't it was it was after it had gone by the date I hadn't received my new driving license. A simple thing like that. 
Yet it was very, very important to me. I had a full license to drive anything. JCBs, seven and a half ton lorries, anything. But all that life has now passed and I've got to shelve it, put it away. Sometimes I drive the car to the hospital, which gives me a lift, helps me mentally to think, well, I can still do that. But there are certain things I can't do. Thanks, David. <laughs> um, Lynn, if I could come to you now, what would be your one um, piece of advice to offer someone following a cancer diagnosis? That being active, um, there's so much evidence now for how regular exercise not only improves the your physical function, which obviously is, has happened with with David, and as he as David said about the psychological impact. So just by doing and achieving how much that can make you feel, take back that control and feel better psychologically. But there's now lots of evidence to support it really for it reducing um, recurrence and also um, helps you deal better with, with treatment. So you're able to physically and psychologically cope better with, with your treatment. Thanks. Lynn. And Lisa, finally, what would be your one piece of advice to offer someone following a diagnosis of cancer? When I, years ago, when I worked in a hospice, I worked with a fantastic uh, hospice chaplain called Steve. And he, he would spend lots of time with everybody, whether they had belief or not. And he listened to patients talk about how much cancer had destroyed and damaged and spoiled and ruined in people's lives. Um, and Steve would always also then ask them to think about all the things that cancer cannot do and how limited it really is so for instance it, it cannot cripple love it cannot shatter hope it can't corrode faith and friendships it can't suppress memories it can't silence courage and it can't invade our soul and I think that's really great advice that's fabulous thank you Lisa can I say a big thank you to all of you for joining us today on this podcast which I hope will um give inspiration and vital information to others who have been diagnosed with cancer or are supporting family and friends.